Hello, everyone, and welcome to the INSEAD Ideas in Motion podcast. I'm your host, Anjum Rangwala. Claudia Zeisberger is a professor of entrepreneurship and family enterprise at INSEAD and the founder and academic co-director of the school's private equity and venture capital center. Professor Zeisberger has over 30 years of experience as a finance professional and as an expert with deep experience in risk management, private equity, and venture capital, corporate venturing, and innovation. She is a member of KKR's Sustainable Expert Advisory Committee and sits on the advisory boards of multiple VC firms and corporate VCs. She is an expert on responsible investing and is often invited in the role of professional devil's advocate. Hello, Claudia. Uh, Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for agreeing to be a guest. Thank you very much. Thanks for the invitation. So I look forward to the conversation. To kick it off, uh, I'd love to hear a little bit about your personal and professional background, what you were doing before INSEAD and what you're focusing now at INSEAD. So let's start with INSEAD, the most recent history. So 17 years at INSEAD, and uh, it uh, I look after anything that relates to private capital. So the broad spectrum from venture capital, growth equity, all the way to buyouts. So that's my main focus where I literally spend probably 80 to 90% of my time on. And we can circle back later on why there's so much time spent on it, because clearly compared to even 15 years ago, um, this the, the, the market was much smaller and there would have not been so much need to, to spend so much time on it. In addition, what I do also, I launched uh, 10, 10 years ago, I launched a turnaround uh, class at INSEAD where I developed a simulation with two alumni. And uh, so that kind of keeps me busy for the other 10% of my time. Now, you want to to know pre-NCR too, right? So pre-NCR, I basically spent 15 years in banking and finance, global markets, investment banking. So that's basically what, uh, what I did before. I'm German originally, so right now I'm probably spend about six months of the year in Singapore, the rest between Europe and uh, North America. And uh, before that, uh, I was, before I moved to, to, to Singapore, I was in, in, in Tokyo, I was in London, I was based in New York, and just a little bit in Frankfurt as well. So I've been, despite being German, I'm really a long-term expat. So I have not lived uh, or worked in Europe for over 35 years. And within your interest in research in venture capital and private equity, are there any particular uh, topics that you're very interested in right now? Yeah, so there, in the greater scheme of things, there are two things that, that keep me busy, and both of them probably surprising. And what I mean by surprising is if you would have asked me five years ago or told me that I would be spending so much time on those two topics, I would have said absolutely no way. So one thing is anything related to sustainability, responsible investment and ESG. And that started off already a few years ago with a focus on private equity. Uh, So again, I I, I stay away from the public markets, uh, which in the context of ESG is 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 a big topic and it's a relevant one. It's just I need to be mindful of where I spend my time. So ESG keeps me super busy. Um, I joined end of last year uh, KKR Sustainability Advisory Council. So that basically keeps me busy together with a very, very large private equity firm with 
a very diverse portfolio with very, very diverse questions. Um, on the other hand, I'm, what keeps me also busy is corporate venture capital. So large corporations wanting to come closer to the startup ecosystem. So it's probably not just corporate venture capital, it's corporate venturing in the widest sense. So um, that keeps me busy simply for, for several reasons. A, because the, the corporates are interested, they have questions. I probably get three to five requests a week from corporates to talk to their boards, to, to address questions. So there's, the, so there's the interest from the outside. And then secondly, also we developed, uh, um, I developed with a colleague, a program in executive education that uh, focuses purely on corporate venturing and innovation. In that program, I mean, we go over the whole menu that corporates can use to engage with the entrepreneurial ecosystem from investing in funds, from to running a corporate venture capital fund, to doing venture building, creating ventures themselves, to running a the venture client model in the in the vein of a, a BMW, and obviously accelerators, incubators in all their various permutations. So those are the two things: ESG and corporate venture capital. So going back to the first topic, ESG. So how do you think that, you know, a sharpened focus on ESG and trends towards investing in sustainability has changed the way that VC firms approach investing now? So in the VC space, it is still reasonably new. So, I mean, private equity started much earlier um, in kind of grappling with those topics. In VC, it's a little bit uh, more recent, uh, probably about 12, 18 months ago, when I really saw the majority of, uh, of, of VC funds at least raising the question on, how, on, on number one, what does it mean for, let's say, an early stage VC to, um, to add an ESG element to their mandate? What I mean by mandate is their investment mandate. Every fund, whether it's venture capital or otherwise, comes with a clear mandate. So that mandate is agreed upon at the beginning with their investors and the fund then sticks to that mandate. So an ESG um, coming in as a focus usually means that an ESG element, an ESG criteria is being added to the next fund that's being raised. Um, that means obviously for a venture capital fund that number one, they need to develop a scorecard that they can use during due diligence on the startups that they're investing in, but also a scorecard that they can encourage their startups to use to regularly report on their improvements when it comes to KPIs related to ESG. So all this is not, it's, it's not trivial. So um, the, the trend is clearly towards a, um, uh, a more thoughtful way of measuring and implementing that ESG mandate. And I'm keeping it particularly broad. And we may want to even call it a sustainability mandate, which, in my opinion, is the broader term, the family name for this topic. And for the VCs now to, to, to actually really implement it. So in a few years time, they can look back and say, well, 
we arguably move the needle when it comes to comes to sustainability in our portfolio companies, but also in the way we're potentially investing, the way we're deploying capital, the way we're selecting startups. That's not trivial. So it's not a trivial task. And but I think from what I've seen on the private equity side as well, um, it is not something that will go away anytime soon. So I think venture capital funds should be ready to have um, answers to the questions, which I guarantee you they will be asked latest when they raise their next fund from their institutional investors. What, what do you think is the driving factor behind this? I mean, do you think it's more the fact that you know, PE funds are already a little ahead of the game in, in this space, investing in sustainability? Do you think it's LPs or more of like the public pressure or general trends? Well, I think it's all of the above. So, so clearly there's a public trend. I mean, I mean, there were impact investing funds in 2010, but frankly, this was not a broad concept, right? They were small, they were niche, $300 million impact fund was a big fund, right? So obviously fast forward and, you know, literally everyone has a billion dollar impact fund now. So, um, so, so that has clearly changed. Um, clearly, I think also in general, humanity, at least I like to believe that, is more aware of the challenges that we are facing and that those challenges will, number one, not go away, and number two, will clearly uh, increase unless we roll up our sleeves now and make significant changes. So I think um, from having spent time just in the last year with carbon experts, so people that know, um, have, have basically looked at this for, for, for decades and really understand the problem deeply on from carbon to methane and so on and what is realistic as well. We're really at the point right now as a, as a, as a planet, as humanity, where we really don't have the headroom anymore for experimenting. And what I mean by that is by trial and error, let's try this in five years time, it hasn't worked, let's try something else. We don't have the luxury anymore. So we really need to find solutions that can be A, implemented, but B, also scalable. So a lot of the, for example, energy transition solutions, great ideas, great little uh, experiments, fantastic results, but the, the issue very often comes with scale, just as an example. So, so clearly, I think the, 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 the overall perception on how important E, S, and G is, is uh, has changed. So there's the popular opinion, but clearly, I mean, the LPs, have um, have have become, I think, more thoughtful and more involved. And ultimately, in private capital, the LPs drive the agenda. If your investors keep asking you about, you know, what's your ESG strategy? How do you think about sustainability? How do you implement this in your portfolio companies? So, what does it mean in your for your interaction with portfolio companies? Well, at one point, you're probably going to circle the wagon and say, look, guys, we need we need a more thoughtful answer. This is not something that can be ticked off with one little answer in the due diligence questionnaire. So I think there's, there's that driver. And clearly, the LPs have learned to engage with the private equity funds. They are, and I'm not saying this is perfect by, by no means, right? But clearly, the same LPs are investing also in VC, especially in the larger venture funds. And clearly, they they are saying, well, you know, we're using this Q and A, 
this question for our private equity investors, uh, our private equity funds, how about our VCs? Because they're sitting in the same bucket of private capital. Shouldn't they also have something to say around that? And obviously when it comes to VC, very quickly when we talk about responsible investing and ESG, we very quickly get to the big topic of AI, right? So how can we ensure that our AI startups or our AI entrepreneurs take their potential role or the potential future risks when AI solutions are going to be, which I have no doubt, going to be very pervasive in our lives? Um, within the next decade, how can we ensure that those solutions were built with, um, yeah, in a, in a thoughtful manner? So we basically avoid in AI what I call a Facebook moment, where we mm-hmm. no no intent to um, to to kind of uh, jump on Facebook. But what I mean by Facebook moment, and I'm also kind of speaking as a parent now. Right. So I would like to believe then that in 2010, so pre-Facebook IPO, if we would have had an inclination or an idea of the potential impact that uh, social media can have on polarization of political discourse or um, the, um, yeah, the, the, the well-being of young, of young people, of teenagers, I like to believe that we would have put up some guardrails they would have you know, not allowed for it to get to the point where we are right now, um, where the impact of social media on the well-being of uh, young students, and I'm not talking about MBA, I'm talking about K-12 students, so that we would, have, we would have done something. At least I like to believe that. But unfortunately, the, you know, we were not aware. There were, there was, there were, there were no discussions. Or the discussions were being had. They were not, um, they were not taken serious. And, you know, now the cat's out of the proverbial bag and it's really hard to get it back in. So, so that's kind of, I, I hope we, we get to that this conversation around um, ethical AI, or I even call it just responsible AI. I think ethical is a tall order, but responsible AI, that we're going to have those conversations before the cat is out of the bag. Mm-hmm. All right. And one of, one of the things you mentioned, actually, you know, on the startup side that, um, VCs are helping a lot of startups with, you know, their ESG frameworks and kind of helping them get measure those KPIs and measure different types of progress. But on the startup side, do you think that startups at very early stages, say maybe pre-Series B, should be expected to have these ESG frameworks and metrics in place? You know, for example, like healthcare or fintech startups. I mean, how much is it on the on the startup to kind of have these in place at a very early stage? Well, I, I would I would expect, I mean, define in place, right? I mean, when we talk a seed stage startup, I mean, we're talking three guys in a PowerPoint presentation, right? So there's very, very little to actually have in place. But I would like to, I'd like to believe that as a startup that that is ambitious to operate in, in kind of crucial environments or, or difficult environments like healthcare or anything related to data or anything connected to AI, that from the early stage onward, on, they would have a sense of where they may run into hurdles and start to have a conversation very early on. How could you potentially circumvent this, overcome it, or what are the potential solutions that we could even offer? 
So rather than you know going all systems go, develop a product, and by the time we hit round C, the VC basically needs to say, look guys, this is just, you know, it's not gonna work, right? It's, this is not gonna be possible. And now we have to go back and, and improve it. I mean, what's the sweet spot? I mean, I don't know, but I'd like to believe that that, that any startup operating in those fields or using those tools um, should have, every founder should have a awareness, a level of awareness. And I think that's probably the, the best you can expect at an early stage, that the founders are very clearly aware, we're gonna go into, into AI, our tools will be heavily relying on AI. We are aware of the concerns around uh, artificial intelligence, and we will try to work with within the best practices, with other industry players, um, with groups of um, uh, groups of investors and entrepreneurs that are concerned about uh, the, the future usage of AI. So I think also, I mean, there is a, there's, a, there's a commercial reason for that as well. I mean, if you are, let's leave the, the startup world behind and let's have a look at what's going on in the, with the large corporates, particularly in Europe, where the regulators have come out or are in the process of rolling out within the next three years, some really stringent rules and regulations around the usage and the deployment of AI. And as a startup, I mean, you know, within five years, you will be exposed to the same rules and regulations. And usually, I mean, Europe is usually a bit faster with regulations. Um, the US will jump on that bandwagon at one point as well. So again, I don't think this is kind of a temporary blink on the radar. So as a, as a responsible, as an, as an aware entrepreneur, you should be aware of those, uh, of those regulations coming up. And I mean, I know the entrepreneurs are because we have quite a few entrepreneurs that are deeply involved in, in reg tech, right? And regulation technology that actually helps large corporates to manage the, the, the impact of those, um, of those uh, future regulations. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it, just having the awareness because, you know, the trends are all moving in that direction. There's a lot more regulation and just there's a lot more conversation around this. So just right. having some, some sort of awareness to eventually, you know, figure out how to incorporate these types yeah. of things but into, I mean, into the company. Just to add on to that, I mean, I would then say that the entrepreneurs should see this as an opportunity that they will be in future pitching their ideas and their thoughts to VCs that hopefully are educated enough to appreciate their, their, their concern and their effort that they're making, admittedly at a very early stage. So I think, and I would like to believe that the, the, the industry hopefully will, will grow hand in hand around that. Mm -hmm. So taking a step back a little from ESG and sustainability, which sectors would you say you're right now most excited about? Are there any particular startups in that certain sector that you believe are solving major problems in the space that you, you know, are kind of monitoring closely or you're really, you're really excited to see what they do next? <sighs> Um, I remain excited about what I see in anything related to education and the future of work. So I'm quite excited about it because I think this is a, we're right now in a unique, we have a unique opportunity to implement all those amazing ideas. And what I mean by that is in 2019, they were very, it was very hard as, a, as an edutech founder to convince the, the institutions 
Um, what I mean by that is the schools, the governments, the parents, the students, and everyone along the basically the, the, the development of a, of a K-12 student to, to, to change. And clearly COVID, if there was one positive outcome out of the, the two years, was the awareness that education can change and maybe education should change. So I like to hope that my, uh, my grandchildren will have a very different experience going through K-12 education than, my, uh, than I had and then my son had. So because my son's education was, was probably in terms of the, the process, not that different from mine, which is pretty shocking, right? So, so I'd like to believe that there will be opportunity, there are fantastic startups out there and great opportunities for us to really rethink the way we educate the next generation. And so I could go on about this, this is a topic very close to my heart. So I've been talking anything about from better education to accessible education, to education all the way down to yeah, at the bottom of the pyramid, to, to we can have a long conversation around this, especially in emerging markets. So that's number one. The next thing that excites me, and I'm literally just uh, starting to really pay a little bit more attention to that, is AI, and partly because I'm being pulled into that for, for the ESG conversation. So and I'm excited about it. I'm, I'm, I'm impressed. I'm skeptical as well, but yeah, I'd like, I, I see the opportunities. So let's hope this is going in the right direction. Um, health tech is fantastic. Lots of lots of work still to be remains to be done in, in healthcare. And then I'm a um, I'm a kind of um, involved. Uh, I don't want to call it investor, but observer in anything related to crypto. So crypto, the, the, the web 3.0, metaverse, maybe less so. I need to be still a bit concerned about that. But uh, I see basically opportunities simply because I've seen some of the emerging market countries, uh, especially those with particularly high inflation, to really take advantage of the, the, the availability of various cryptocurrencies, right? So there, there's value in what they offer to countries that have a really, really broken ecosystem uh, or economy. So, so there's value in that. I'd like to see it to, to mature a little bit more, right? So, and that will happen. I mean, it's, it's really, it's, it's early days, it's exciting. I think one has to be involved in that space. Um, I mean, with a, with a, with a reasonable, with, with, with the right risk appetite, the right uh, risk capacity, keeping that in mind. But uh, I think it's an exciting space, and I'll be uh, I'll be interested to see where it goes. And um, yeah, and I'm and I mean I'm I'm following everything that's going on in the art space too, which obviously links back to 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 the NFT side. And there, basically, I'm just I'm just fascinated of what 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 is going on. So so that's kind of like more of like a pet thing, if you like. <laughs> but um, but those are kind of the areas that I'm that I'm interested in. I have to say I've been pulled into conversations on uh, um, startups that engage with anything related to space. So not just space travel, but also, you know, cleaning up of space junk to, to you know, what, what should be in space. And um, so that's that's interesting. Again, it's, it's all a bit kind of um, the, the, the next frontier. So, uh, but those are the things that kind of keep me busy. And then anything that comes my way, I get all kinds of startups pitching to me all the time or sending me their, their decks. And I just, I'm, I'm, I'm really sorry I, to everyone who's listening who I had to say no to because 
I haven't figured out yet, A, how to clone myself. So I hope the AI guys <laughs> will come up with it in the day, unfortunately, even by on my side, only has 24 hours. So, but it's exciting. It's a great time to be an entrepreneur. Um, as I say in my classes always, I think it's the A, because of the opportunities, B, of because of the development, and most importantly, C, because of the available availability of capital. Plenty of capital is looking for a good uh, startup to invest in. Definitely. And I'm also very interested in health tech education, especially in emerging markets. There's so much potential in these two industries. So I'm really excited to see kind of what happens in the next few years in, in both of these spaces. Maybe let me add one more part to it, because then I, I, I've been asked a question for, for years about how about Africa? Right. So, <laughs> so I think actually I'm really inspired by what I'm seeing in Africa. And I'm slowly seeing companies emerge that even by the most rigorous uh, VC standards become what, you, what the VCs call investable opportunities. And that was basically in the past has usually been, and I'm generalizing Africa as a big space. So again, there, 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 there are exceptions to that. But in the past, it has been difficult for investors to find investable opportunities where they felt comfortable to plug themselves behind. And we've seen now a couple of pieces coming together, governments basically realizing entrepreneurship matters and trying to, to facilitate that as well. So it's really, I'm, I'm quite excited about what I'm seeing uh, come out of Africa as well. Outside of the US and Europe, uh, since there are obviously more mature startup markets, would you say that that's the region, Africa, um, that you're most excited about in terms of startup funding and, and growth? Um, yeah, I'm excited about it because it's really, it's, it's, it's so nascent and there's so much uh, of a need, as you just mentioned as well, to, for, for startups to really make a difference and, and, and really impact um, people's lives very quickly. Um, so there basically, that's why I'm excited, but, but we can't forget Asia. I mean, Southeast Asia mm -hmm. is, is pretty exciting. So it, it has been for a long time. I mean, that's not a new story, at least not to me. So it, it's been very exciting. We have great entrepreneurs here. Um, and again, I mean, I think here in, in Asia, the, 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 the governments, the countries have been much more aware of the opportunity of, uh, of startups uh, that startups bring for the overall economy. Right. Mm -hmm. And uh, LATAM as well in 2021 broke a lot of fundraising records. There's a lot of interesting companies coming out of Latin America as well. Yeah, absolutely. Big shout out to Latin America. Big fan of Brazil. On, on a personal note, my best performing startup is a Brazilian one uh, from a group of 19 Ds. So they know who they are. So they, <laughs> they've done exceptionally well. They raised a fantastic round A. So thanks very much for that. So without my help too. So it was amazing. So no, Latin America really is surprising. It's, 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 it's really something that everyone's talking about. In Silicon Valley, I, mean, I, was, I was in the Bay Area in January, Feb, and everyone is talking about Latin America, how to get involved and so on. Absolutely. Definitely. So switching gears a little bit to uh, another topic I wanted to cover. So we're seeing right now that growing companies, startups, they're staying private for much longer. Um, and that's kind of been the trend, what's been happening in the last few years. And, you know, in the past, many companies kind of turned to the public markets as a way to um, finance expansion. So, but now, since there's so much private capital 
available, they're really turning to that in order to hold off or avoid the IPO process. And in turn, this has really pushed up deal sizes in late stage VC and growth equity. And it's kind of pushing them up to the range that's almost targeted by buyout funds. And because of this upward shift, we're seeing that some buyout funds have actually created growth funds with mandates that allow them to invest in these types of companies. So I kind of see this a bit as a blur between late stage VC, growth equity, and buyouts. And I was curious to hear what you think about this trend and whether you think that this will continue for the rest of the year and how you think this is going to play out in the rest of 2022. Yeah. So um, excellent question. And absolutely, the convergence of private equity and venture capital is a really, really interesting um, development. And it's a a reasonably recent development. Again, I don't think we would be having this conversation in a podcast even uh, even four years ago. So it used to be that it were venture on one side and the private equity on the other side, and there were a bunch of funds that were playing in the middle as growth equity funds uh, with a mandate. But you're absolutely right. I mean, to some extent, it's the, it goes back to the point I made early on, the availability of capital, the availability of capital in the private capital space. I mean, private equity, venture capital, all have just grown in consistently over the last two decades. So it's uh, the asset class that had the, the, lot, the most significant growth during over that time. So what does it mean? Uh, that means that is more capital available. So we get more startups on the side to, to, to raise money, which to some extent probably also means that tier two and tier three ideas get funding. So the kind of screening role of venture may not be as strong anymore as it used to be in the, uh, in the, in the old days, if you like. Um, and on the other side, as startups grow, they continue to find readily available funding um, for, in, for round B, for round C, and that's a global phenomenon. So it's not necessarily um, only the US or only Europe. And that means they stay private longer, absolutely. And to some extent, I mean, the, the, um, at the time, the one, if you want to go back and point to, to a starting point, it probably was SoftBank's vision fund, the first one that came out and basically put it out and said, hey, here we are now, okay? We're going to be willing to write big checks and we're going to do this very quickly um, with reasonably marginal due diligence and so on. So, so that kind of put, uh, put a high watermark for all the other funds out there. So all the other VCs had to kind of decide where we're gonna play. Are we gonna stick to our guns as we have done it for the, since 1970s? Or are we gonna start playing in the larger space? And add to that some of the crossover funds, the guys that came from the hedge fund side and started the Tigers and, and, and so on. Um, and all of a sudden you had a couple of uh, players that were willing to write really big checks for companies that were probably absolutely uh, pre-2017 would have had to go IPO. They would have had no choice because the kind of money that you wanted to raise, four, five, ten billion dollars, there was no one that would have written the check for a company of that kind of maturity or yeah, early stage maturity. So that obviously has now kind of like raised the attraction. But I think, let me add to that, there's pri- why is private equity interested in that space? They are also interested in that space because they are the con- and those conversations have been going on for a couple of years. So they were basically saying, well, we have the stable of portfolio companies as a private equity fund. If I want to make them, you know, improve them to be able to exit them at a higher valuation, what do I need? I need kind of, I need 
tools that help me to digitize processes, to people that can help me think through and modernize businesses and so on. Where do I find those ideas? Well, I'm finding those ideas. I'm buying the products for this, basically, from all those round B, C and D startups that are out there. So there's another motivation for the private equity funds to say we should be much closer to the startup space. How do we get closer to the startup space? Well, that's the rule book of private equity. You want to be close to something, you basically put some money into it. So why don't we basically invest in some of those startups? And yes, absolutely. So um, that's why private equity has been kind of dropping down, as we call it, and have started to raise funds that invest minority stakes in less mature companies than their buyout funds would. So I think that's how I look at it. So there's movement on both sides. The PE guys moving towards VC for interest in innovation. And secondly, the VC ones, the VC investors, especially also the larger, the longer established brands raising larger funds and thereby being able to support their portfolio companies in a very different way. And on the VC side, you're even seeing on, if you go back to seed and series A rounds, the deal sizes have gotten massive. I mean, I've seen some seed and series A rounds in the last year that I never would have seen five years ago. Some of the sizes and these are, you know, obviously pre-product, nothing is launched at this point. So um, it's really incredible to kind of see that change. No, we're we're seeing basically, um, I mean, round A value uh, in the US. So have probably have increased, what was it over the last 10 years, six times by pre-money valuations. So it's just mm-hmm. insane. I mean, all and obviously everything is connected, right? So you have more money. So let's say, let's ignore the PE guys for a second. Let's look at VC only. So there's more money slashing around. Okay. So we can basically invest in companies at a higher valuation because we have a bigger fund, right? We can write a bigger check. So, and as things obviously with more money chasing, let's say a finite amount of deals, those deals get more expensive. So you need to raise a larger fund because the deals are getting more expensive in around B and C. And by the way, if you're not in round A, you may not even get into round B and C. So now you need to drop down. Let's drop down and raise a round A fund. And all of a sudden you have guys that come from the B and C mindset and are now investing in round A in startups just so they get a toe or a foot in the door to to be able to deploy their round B and C funds. So and that kind of like trickles down and that's why now we have we have seed, we have pre-seed, we have you know all those things that probably didn't wouldn't be talking about again a decade ago. So um yes, I mean it's all connected, but the 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 reality is there's a lot of money slushing around which pushes valuations up and which then makes basically the, the, the potential investment at a later stage even possible for private equity. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And to tie things back to, to INSEAD, actually, to round out the end of, end of this episode, um, obviously the target audience for this podcast is current students, prospective students, people who are interested in you know, starting their own company, joining an early stage company, potentially going into venture capital. I really wanted to hear potentially what advice you have for students who are interested in, in one of these spaces. Yeah, where do I start? So I think number <laughs> one, um, it's I mean, getting into 
So let's start with VC. Getting into VC, I'm I'm a firm believer, and that's an opinion. There's there's evidence that, that that it can work other ways as well. Getting into VC, it really really is useful. Having had a startup experience, or having had an experience where you worked with a young company and helped them scale, it will make you a much more sympathetic, empathetic investor over the long run. So, so that to me is minor. So, how do you get basically into VC, and and how do you get excited about it? So, I think for 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 our students, it's also for our uh, for our MBAs particularly, but certainly for our MIMS. Um, it clearly would be useful to 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 actually spend some time at a young company before you basically and keep your eye on the VC space. Start building your network because that's the only way you're really going to get into into the VC space. Keep make yourself smart. Stay smart about the developments. Find yourself a sector and then potentially transition over to it. On the on the entrepreneurial side. Um, as I said, this is a fantastic time to be an entrepreneur. So I'd be clearly, I mean, this is the time to 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 experiment because the the technology is there to do it fast, to to experiment fast, to fail fast, but also to succeed fast. And clearly, capital is readily available. Now, obviously, whether or not to become an entrepreneur obviously comes also with a personal risk assessment, right? I mean, so whether you're, I mean, are you, uh, are you an individual? Are you come? Do you have a young family? So you got to be do a pretty good assessment of your risk appetite and your risk capacity. So in a very personal uh, capacity. So whilst I'm excited about entrepreneurship, I think it's a very kind of a personal decision that you that that you need to make. When you decide that it's the right thing for you to do to go into entrepreneurship uh, or join a young company, again, make yourself smart. You know, what are you signing up to? Uh, what what are the risks? What's the likelihood of it to succeed? So always make sure you go into everything with open, with eyes wide open. So there's plenty of research, there's plenty of evidence where you can look at it and say, look, does this make sense? Do I give myself a certain amount of time? I'm going to try this really now for the next two years and then basically um, see how this works out. And if it doesn't work out, but there's always a way to, 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 to basically go back to industry or back to what, what you did before. Um, second, and the final comment on those that are joining startups, and those in my class will know that what I'm going to say now, obviously, when you're joining a startup, usually you're being enticed with a, an ESOP, an employee share option plan. Just be aware of what you're signing yourself up to. And what I mean by that is, depending on where you are in the world, you know, how is your ESOP being evaluated? How is it being taxed? Be very clear about under what circumstances will your ESOP convert into shares in the company? What does it mean if the company is going to a down round and so on and so forth? So I think, again, it's all about go into any opportunity with eyes wide open and there's no shortage of information and certainly no shortage of of classes that you can take at INSEAD to to really give you the foundation that make you you a great entrepreneur. Apart from the classes that you can take at INSEAD, obviously these paths, whether it's entrepreneurship, joining an early stage startup or going into VC even, they're all very unstructured paths. So do you think that there's anything that NCAD can do to better promote careers in these spaces or to you know, teach students more about these different types of career paths? 
To be honest, I mean, I don't know whether there's something that you can do to um, to to make it more structured. I think part of the excitement is that it is not structured. Right. So, and I think that kind of is already a bit of an acid test. If you worry about, if you're concerned about structure, and that's kind of what really what what you need to 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 do well in an environment in a, in a job. The early stage uh, company may not be a good home for you, and I think you have to be really, really quite, quite, quite honest about it because a startup in 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 any shape or color is full on. Right, it's full on. It's mm-hmm. forty-eight by seven. It's nonstop. Right. So, and it will be. I mean, unstructured is kind of the subtitle for every startup. Right. So that's just the nature right. of the beast. You will be pivoting left, right, and center. So, so it's it's exciting, and you've got to be excited about the ride. I mean, I, I I'm a firm believer that the secret to to happiness, if you like, in a career from a career point of view, is really to find a match, to find a match with your not only with your with your capabilities. I mean, we all can learn, but also with what you like, where you are really, where you thrive. What kind of environments do you thrive in? And I think uh, for all our MIMS and MBAs, I mean, this is a great time, a great age to experiment with it. And don't be don't be shy to say, look, I mean, this is this is not what I signed up for, and I, I there's no way I could basically um, be a founder and live with so much uncertainty because uncertainty is going to be everything is uncertain, right? Until whatever I had a young founder recently say to me, like, well, you know. This uh, this year is going to be make or break for our startup. So they had raised a little bit of funding, and this year they're going to go for their round A. And I said, look, I mean, it, it's always make or break for a startup. I mean, every week, every day of the every day of the month. So, so I would I would say what INSEAD can do, and I think what we do quite well. I mean, to bring our our alumni that are experienced in uh, in entrepreneurship back to the school and give our young students, the soon to be alumni, a chance to engage with them. Because there's one, there's, there's, there's clear evidence that has been well researched that the single most important indicator for, for people shifting towards an entrepreneurial career is exposure to entrepreneurs exposure in not just success stories, but just hearing about the experience. Having role models in entrepreneurship is crucial. And I think there, I think the INSEAD could do, we could do better. We have fantastic uh, alumni. So um, I think we, we, we could do better in kind of showcasing them and potentially opening the door for them to talk to our to our students because they're usually I mean my experience with them has been that they are very generous with their time and always excited about talking in the, talking about their experience. Yeah, that has been my case, actually, just even reaching out to people for this podcast, speaking to a lot of alumni who started their own company or in VC or at different startups. Um, It's been amazing to hear about their experiences. And, you know, I had no idea that some some of these people were in these different industries or were doing these amazing things. So it's really been eye opening and and amazing just to hear that, oh, wow, somebody who was in my shoes five or 10 years ago is where they're at now. So that's that's definitely incredibly inspiring to, to, to listen to. 
Indeed, it's very inspiring. And I mean, this is something that we, I mean, we have a fantastic network of entrepreneurs and residents and they are accessible obviously to, to students. But from the showcasing point of view, I think we, we, we should do a bit more. We should fly a bit the, the, the INSEAD flag a bit harder. So that would be my proposal. And to end things on a bit of a fun note, uh, if you had to pick one memory, what is your your favorite memory from when, to, from when you started teaching at INSEAD? Oh God, where do I start? Um, <laughs> the one of my favorite memories was um, God. What, what's it called? The 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 run that we do in Insia, the dash in the dash. Uh, yeah, the dash. Because I was in class that morning, and clearly I hadn't gotten the memo that the dash would be happening. So I went into class. I did not know what was going on. I was like, what is this, <laughs> right? Why is everyone dressed up clearly? So I just basically taught and ignored them. So in the class that, that was at the receiving end, they were clearly very confused about it. So then uh, then obviously in between sections, I, I, I was told that this is basically, we just ran from, uh, um, from down Dover Road to campus and this is basically the big thing. But I hadn't paid attention to it and clearly there was a memo that had gone out and I missed that email. So when I walked into class, I thought something is up on campus. So, so that was very fun. But in general, I mean, I would say, my, my favorite memories about um, at INSEAD is uh, reaching out when I structured the turnaround elective, reaching out to alumni. And I had uh, a call, one of my first calls, um, having been given a list of alumni in the turnaround space, was with a, uh, an alumnus who graduated in 1969. So, and he was, he's become a really good friend. Um, he lives in the UK and it was such an experience to talk to him about his experience in 1969, graduating from, from Fonti on many levels, size of the intake. Um, that was the year where the first female, uh, female uh, student was on campus and so on. I mean, his experience was just stunning. And he was a great supporter, I have to say. We probably would have not been able to pull off this uh, elective um, without his support on, and his experience. He was in class until four years ago, showed up regularly in class in Fonti as a guest speaker. So, um, so yeah, so the, my, I think my engagement with alumni has been just incredible at NCIAT. And I'm very grateful for that because uh, my classes would not be the same without the generosity of our alumni to coming to class, writing cases with us, opening doors for, for me, for my research and so on. And that continues until today. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Claudia, for coming onto the podcast. Really enjoyed hearing everything that you had to say from sustainability to sectors that you're interested in to hearing about trends in BC as well. And of course, your advice for uh, NCAD students at the end. So thank you again very much and uh, look forward to uh, seeing what you publish next. Thanks very much. I will publish on my YouTube channel. So please follow me and uh, thanks very much for making the time for this interview. I look forward to getting comments. Friends, thank you for listening to the Ideas in Motion podcast. I sincerely hope you enjoyed it. Stay tuned for more episodes soon. And if you liked this one, please share it. Signing off, I'm your host, Anja Brangwala. <laughs>